Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. ここが高校教師ですよ。でも登りのバスはもう閉まりだが。しかしどっか止まるところぐらいあるでしょう。こっちです。よろしく一つ。女で一つじゃ無理なんですよ。Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Beth Accomando. Thanks. This is going to be a fun one. <laughs> also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. We continue our request month with one from Patreon donor Ludo Round. This week, we are discussing Hiroshi Teshigara's Woman in the Dunes. Based on a novel by and adapted by the author Kobo Abe, the film stars Ichi Okada as a teacher and amateur entomologist Nikkei Junpei. 
On a seaside vacation, he spends the night with the titular woman, played by Kyoko Kishida. In the morning, he finds that he is trapped in the pit that holds her home. He's now expected to help her shovel sand every night in a kind of Sisyphean nightmare. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen it. We will still be here. So, Sam, when was the first time you saw Woman in the Dunes, and what did you think? I want to say the first time that I saw it was probably around 15 years ago or so, when I was like really starting to get into Japanese cinema more than just like gangster movies and horror movies, and... I rewatched it recently today for the first time since then, and it's amazing. It's almost universally hailed as a masterpiece and like for such good reason. And Beth, how about yourself? All right. So I have a confession. My first memory of this film is not from actually seeing it. And it's weird that all these things come together at a particular time. I remember my mother describing this film to me. We used to have a theater here called the Unicorn Cinema, which they currently now have an exhibit going at the La Jolla Historical Society to commemorate it. It closed in, I think, like 82, but it was an amazing place that was conjoined to a bookstore. But my mom and dad took me to a lot of inappropriate films there. I remember seeing Yojimbo and being haunted by this image of a dog carrying a severed hand that took me 20 years to figure out where it was from. I saw Bergman films and Kurosawa films before I had any clue what they were about. But I distinctly remember my mother describing this film they saw at the Unicorn of this woman who lived in this pit of sand and this man who was trapped there and being so fascinated by the image of what she described and not seeing the film for probably decades after that. I mean, they probably saw it close to when it came out and, you know, I was probably like six or seven or something like that when she described it. And I think I ended up seeing it like when I was in college, you know, taking at film school. But I just remember my mom describing it and just being absolutely almost haunted by that image of somebody in this like sand pit and like wanting to see that film for the longest time. And that image just stuck with me. <laughs> when you finally saw it, did it live up to the hype? Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's an amazing film. It's just so stunningly shot. And the visuals are just so immersive that it totally held up to that. Yeah. Do you guys think that this is the most beautiful use of sand in a film? I was trying to think earlier of what might compare. And I was mentally drawing a blank. It is in the sense of getting almost every iteration of sand you could imagine, going in on a single grain of sand and looking like almost a skull or something, and then pulling out and then keep getting bigger and then seeing the sand flow like a river and just like have all these different textures. I think on that level it does, but for just like the immensity of sand, you know, Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> in scope. Again, I had just done this story on the Unicorn Cinema. This friend of mine was recounting that during their like 36-hour New Year's Eve marathon, 
she tried to stay awake during Lawrence of Arabia at like 2 a.m. in the morning and she kept falling asleep and waking up to sand like and she kept falling asleep and waking up to sand. (laughs) And so I, I just now think of it as like there is a vast expanse of sand in that, but of a very different kind. And I would rather watch Woman in the Dunes in a heartbeat rather than Lawrence of Arabia. I saw that once and that's about all I needed, really. Oh, Woman in the Dunes. So, I could still watch that again. I don't know. Oh, it, yeah. It just felt very long, very protracted to me. I'm more of a bridge on the river quiet type of guy when it comes to my David Leans. And I still, confession, haven't seen Dr. Zhivago. I still need to do that one of these yeah, days. But Peter O'Toole, those blue eyes. Oh, my God. Oh, no, Marsharif. He's a god in that movie as well. But yeah. I would like to see that on the big screen. So far, I've only seen it on television. Oh, okay. Well, that makes a huge difference. I will say. Yes, same. I I need to see it on a big screen. I think I prefer David Lean's earlier, more expressionistic stuff, like his Dickens adaptations and like uh, Brief Encounter, because I haven't seen any of his films in a theater. And so I'm sure that makes it all the difference. It does. The expanse of it. It's like I remember the first time I saw The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly at the Cinerama Dome. And I had seen it on a screen before, but that dome experience, the ecstasy of gold, was like an entirely different movie than what I had seen before. I mean, the spinning around had a completely different impact than seeing it on Still big screens, but it was different. And definitely, Lawrence of Arabia needs a big screen. It showed once at the Fox Theater downtown here, and I missed it, and I still regret it to this day. I was also, on a related note, telling Mike, I found out yesterday that tonight in New York, they played Women in the Dunes in 35mm. <gasps> oh. I was like, God damn it. Man. <laughs> And was it just last week you got to see which one yep. was it? Pitfall, last week I saw Pitfall. I saw Pitfall, his first film, which so beautiful in the theater. I saw it at Japan Society, which does have a smaller screen, but it's still just like that immersive experience, especially with the way that Pitfall and Woman in the Dunes, the way that they're both scored in the sound design, I think being in a theater makes all the difference. But hopefully Woman in the Dunes will come back around so <laughs> I can see it when we're not recording and talking about it. Teshigahara, so much of his early filmography is all working with Kobo Abe. And that Woman in the Dunes, the book, just came out in 1962. The movie came out in 1964. And yeah, he made they made Pitfall together, Woman in the Dunes, a short called Akko, Face of Another, and Man Without a Map, all in a... Just a pretty short period of time. I want to say it was like 62 to 68. And that was like Teshigahara's real thing. Like, it's funny. He's not as highly mentioned in, say, David Desser's Japanese Eros Plus Massacre book uh, all about the Japanese new wave because he was just so specialized in that during that kind of prime period of when the Japanese new, new wave was really starting. But I love 
what he was doing with all of these movies and that he just had that really good relationship with Abe and Abe was, a, I mean, I listened to the book of women in the dunes and it was fantastic. I just read it and it's remarkable how close to the movie it is. Like I did kind of a weird thing this time around where I read the first chunk, I watched the first 30 minutes of the movie and was like blown away by how one to one they are. And I noticed that like some of the deviations, he takes dialogue that's in the book, but maybe gives it to a different character. His work with Tashigahara, it's it's like some of the most dead on adaptations anywhere in film history. And they just had such a crazy partnership. The one writer that I kept thinking of while I was reading Woman in the Dunes or listening to it was J.G. Ballard. Ballard had those that that Elemental series where it was like the Crystal World, the Drowned World, uh, that's so Earth, Air, Fire, and Water. I can't remember what all of all of them were at the time, and that was just shortly after I want to say that this was written, and just that idea of concrete island where it's the guy who ends up in this traffic circle and just lives the rest of his life there like he doesn't want to escape or maybe he tries to escape and he can't escape just this feeling of being stuck especially in a modern world and i like that there is a modern world in this movie but we never see it we just hear about it and just so much of it is experienced through our main character that He's completely clueless. I mean, he's such a great stand-in for the audience because we don't know that he's about to be trapped when he shows up and he's there on his little holiday trying to collect bugs and all this. And he's just such a straight arrow type of guy. And I think he's a teacher back in the real world. And when you get that final moment of the the movie, which comes early in the book, which is the him being reported missing for seven years, and they pretty much just close the case on him. Nobody cares about this guy. Like, he has nobody back home. I think it's his mother that files the report on him, and that's it. He just disappears. Nobody ever finds him. Yeah, and I do think there's a whole kind of angle here about this maybe 20th century phenomena of Japanese people disappearing and going missing. You, I think you see a number of new wave directors making films about that and like pseudo documentaries. And a lot of the other ones focus on the people who do the reporting and they don't focus on the disappeared person as a protagonist. They're sort of like this empty space. Whereas here, it's it's like he knows that somebody maybe is going to come look for him or report him missing. But the way that she reacts and the villagers, it's like they know no one is coming to look for this guy. His sense of somebody's going to come look for me is sort of based on his acceptance and and dependence on social structure Less so than like, oh, I think somebody's going to miss me. It's like, there's laws there. You know, you're going to get in trouble. Like there's a structure that he's counting on and relying on more so than I think that he thinks he's going to be missed or something. And that's sort of interesting to me. And, you know, the whole reason he's out there 
on the dunes is because he wants to find a bug so that a beetle so that he can get written up in a guide and get some sort of notoriety. And that's sort of what keeps him on the dunes is like he has a moment to escape, but he goes, I've created this thing, you know, to, to capture water, you know, to get the moisture, to collect the moisture. And maybe I'll escape tomorrow, but I need to tell somebody about this and they'll appreciate it. And like, there's that weird need of his to get some sort of recognition. Like leave a mark on the world. Or just be appreciated for something. So it's a, it's interesting that he thinks like society structure is going to somehow recognize that he's missing, but then... He's also looking for like his own kind of recognition. Yeah, he has dialogue, which and looking at the runtime, the film is really long. But when you actually watch it, it's like it needs to be that long for all the payoff of his character development to make sense. And like, I don't think they address this until an hour and a half into the film, but she says something to him like, you must really miss Tokyo. And he's like, no, I do not miss Tokyo. Like, I don't like the city. I don't like the bustle. And it's like the more he talks to her, he kind of accidentally reveals that maybe he's actually the perfect candidate to be (laughs) kidnapped by this community because exactly like you said, it's like he's relying on the bureaucracy, not on the human connection. Like he seems to have no human connection. Other than I think the first thing he says is like, my union will report me if I'm not back. (laughs) And he says something like I'm registered, like everything has some sort of one of the things that he says towards the end of the film that I think is hilarious. He says to her, Somebody will definitely know I'm missing. My entire office is like a cry for help. I left my bank book on the table. And it's like, that's the most personal thing you could think of is your bank book. (laughs) Yeah, that whole thing of like how important papers are and that he that that the movie ends with the missing persons report and the whole thing of him, you know, the case closed. We're not he's gone. And that paper at the end is fits right in line with all of the other pieces of paper that he's talking about. Like, oh, well, I've got my license and I've got this and I've got that. And it's just like, you are beholden to all of this imaginary stuff that just has your name on it. And you think that it actually means something, but it is utterly meaningless. It's as, as, as shifting as the sand and as, as elusive as that radio signal that you're trying to find, you know, and like getting that transistor is like such a big deal. I was kind of surprised you're talking about the runtime and the pacing. And I was surprised at just how much of the book happens in the last bit of it that they end up making much more significant, which I, I appreciate. I mean, the whole thing of like, Oh, the, the crow trap, the, um, Yes, we'll let you walk free for 30 minutes if you have sex with this woman in front of us. I mean, that scene is not very long in the book, but it goes on for a long time. And you feel that emotion, or at least it feels that way to me when I'm watching it, especially as it gets louder and louder and louder. And you've got all the people with their flashlights and you've got people with masks and there's music and all this. And it's just like, wow, it goes on for a long time. And you feel that pressure and, you know, as it goes on through the rest of the book, which is 
just a handful of pages where it's like, oh, they forgot my this, the woman was pregnant, and oh, they forgot and they left the rope ladder down, so now I'm going to go up and take a look around, and I think I'm going to go back into the hole. You know, he finally gets his chance to escape because he's trying to escape. There's like at least two, let's see, he gets pulled up on the rope and they drop it, which hurts him. And then there's also him with the grappling hook where he's trying to get out. And then he ends up in quicksand, which is a great way for him to get caught with the sand itself. And, you know, and he's so desperate trying to get out. And then he finally gets that opportunity. And it's like, yeah, like you're saying, well, I got to tell people about this cool water extraction technique that I figured out. This is going to sound like a crazy comparison, but... Recently, I have been watching Lost for the very first time, the the TV show that everyone was obsessed with 20 years ago. And rewatching Woman in the Dunes, I couldn't help but think about those similarities. Like you spend so much of the narrative time trying to get a character or characters out of this place removed from civilization And then when they get there or they think about actually going there, they're like, you know what? Actually, we're good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We have to go back to the island. Yes. He's, he doesn't even have to go back because he's not bothering to leave. (laughs) Just him there with that rope ladder in his hands. He's just like, "Mm, no, I think I'm good. I mean, he finally has become the prisoner that they wanted him to be. I was reminded, speaking of, of weird comparisons, I was reminded a lot of Motel Hell and the Cars That Ate Paris. Just this whole idea of having this community, this village that traps people. And they obviously don't, they don't murder him for meat and they don't take away his possessions because he really doesn't have any possessions. Dead and buried too. Yeah, exactly. You know, you get into this weird situation and I'm trying to remember, cause in the book, they definitely make it apparent that there are other pits where other people live and they are doing the exact same thing. I'm not sure if I get that in the movie as much. It's almost better that we just think it's the one. She does reference it. Okay. She does say that there are other people who have been taken like that. So yeah, you're aware that there's others. You don't know how many and you never see any of them. But uh, she does mention that. But, you know, you mentioned some of those titles, and there's so much in the film that has a horror vibe to it, especially the music. The soundscape just, like, feels creepy the whole time. (laughs) My favorite, I don't even want to call it subgenre, because I don't think that really applies. But one of my favorite tropes is these sorts of art house movies that make a lot of use of horror and especially folk horror themes without ever really explicitly going there. And this one, it just, it's, I think such a perfect example of that because there are times like, I definitely remember the first time I saw it, I was convinced that it was going to be like misery, but in the sand instead does something stranger but maybe almost more interesting and i do think the score from toro takamitsu who he worked with a lot it's so chilling and times when you just have a shot of somebody walking across the sand or sand sliding off a roof and you hear this like terrifying suspenseful music it's wonderful they are in danger of being buried at all times and you get those great shots 
Talk about the timing or way that they were able to make this happen when he's standing on the roof and all of the sand is falling down the cliff. It's just like, wow, that looks so impressive. And continuing on the horror idea, they almost make them into vampires because they work at night and they sleep during the day. And there's that moment when he first sees her after his, his initial meeting, he goes to sleep, he wakes up and there she is all laid out completely naked, but with the towel over her face. And it almost looks like she's a corpse at that point. And there's, there are so many times where it's like, he's trying to rouse her. And there's this whole idea of like him not being able to adjust to the work, but then also the nighttime and just that everything has to happen at night because of the way that the sand is easier to shovel at night than it is during the day. And so that's when the villagers show up. That's when that's, uh, almost rape happens. I mean, just so many things are going on at nighttime, and then the day is just so oppressive with the heat and more with the sand. It's the topsy-turvy kind of take where in Tokyo, you know, he was probably flipped. I mean, although there's probably a nightlife, but the idea that you work during the day and there's all this, again, it's all this structure and he just needs to kind of acclimate to the new structure. <laughs> but again, he's, I mean, there is both societies, whether it's the village or Tokyo, both have a sense of structure to it. And I think that's ultimately what he kind of feels comfortable in on a certain level. Also reminded me so much of somebody like Kafka, who I know Kobo Abe was a big fan of, where it's not just a sense of structure in like a helpful sense. It's this kind of imposed structure that says like, you have to conform to this. And if you don't, you will die. Either you'll just be kind of excluded socially, or we will literally not give you water and, and you will die in this pit of sand. It's so creepy. And also that Kafka sense of kind of the absurd and the surreal, because, you know, the idea of shoveling sand every night <laughs> just so you can survive. And, you know, he even makes a point. He says, you know, are you shoveling sand to live? Or are you living to shovel sand? And, you know, it is absurd. And, you know, you mentioned like a Sisyphean task. And there's definitely that feeling to it, but there's also, on a greater sense, you know, in the case of Sisyphus, it's a punishment. And in this, it's like survival. I mean, if they don't do it, if they just decide they're going to sleep for a week, <laughs> you know, they could wake up buried in the sand or not wake up at all. But that it's all an economic scheme that we are taking the sand to make concrete, which is going to be horrible concrete because of all the salt that's mixed in with the sand. I mean, it's basically like you can be guaranteed that somewhere down the line, because of this sand that we were shoveling every single night, there's going to be a, a building or 12 that collapse someplace or a highway is going to collapse. Something is going to be bad because of what we're doing with this, but we don't care. 
we're just the cogs in the wheel. And then the people up above, like literally up above are pulling up the sand and then taking that and they're making their profit. And then they'll bring you back a little bit of water, a little bit of food, and maybe, uh, you know, a transistor radio at some point. Only if you're really good, do you get the transistor radio. In a lot of ways, to me, it feels like a pretty obvious critique of contemporary capitalism where it's like your entire life is structured around working what for most people I think is a pretty meaningless job but you have to be here at a certain time and you have to stay till a certain time and you have to dress and behave a certain way it's also very much like considering when it came out when it's it's like basically at the beginning of Japan really becoming a financial power and this sort of obsession with salaryman jobs. And the only important thing is for you to work and for you to give a profit towards someone else. And I don't, I can't remember if they say this in the movie, but in the book, when he's finally able to get a newspaper, which he initially like begs her for, like, just give me some sign of the outside world. He reads something in the newspaper that talks about protests over the security treaty, which is for for anyone who isn't familiar, a lot of the Japanese New Wave films have all of this subtext and sometimes literal text about the U.S. influence in Japan and was basically an occupation. And that's what the security treaty is, is all about, is sort of reaffirming the occupation. And I feel like it's not an accident that they slipped that in here. I read an interesting article. So I, I mentioned 55. I thought it was published in 55, but it's actually set. The beginning of it is set in 55. And then it's seven years later, 62 is when the book comes out. And then the movie shortly thereafter. I read an interesting article that was talking about how 55 was also the year that Abe was asked to leave the communist party that he was part of in Japan. I thought it was the other way around. Oh, what did he leave it himself? So my understanding is he asked to leave because like a lot of leftist intellectuals in the fifties, the Soviet interference in the attempted Hungarian revolution made a lot of people really soured on the Soviet Union. That's what it was. Thank and you. so he tried to leave, but because he was becoming really famous at that time, they were like, we're not revoking your membership. You have to stay. It's important that you brought that up because I think so many of these early 60s films were made by leftists grappling with like, do we stay with the Japanese Communist Party? Is there somewhere else for us to go? Like these protests that we worked so hard at throughout the 50s haven't accomplished anything. So I'm sure there's some of that Sisyphean feeling, too, where it's like, how long can you stand out there and protest, and the government does nothing? Well, and Abe also, I'm sure he felt a little bit like an outsider, because he grew up not in Japan, but over in China, in Manchuria, and then eventually left there. And I'm trying to remember the name of the book that he wrote, where it was a bunch of Japanese people leaving a place, and they just get lost along the way, and they never find their way. It I always thought that that was very, like, his message of, like, when we left China, we never really found our way back to Japan. He just always kind of felt like an outsider. Didn't he say something about he was someone without a hometown? So many of 
his collaborations with Teshigahara all seem to be about people who either are aware of or like in Woman in the Dunes are not aware of the fact that they don't really seem to have an identity or or like they don't have a developed life. They're just sort of wandering around looking for something. Well, yeah, that she doesn't even have a name. She's just woman. Yeah, they never name her. And really, I think they might name him at the beginning of the book and then at the end of the book. And I think in the movie, it's just at the end of the movie. I don't think that they really give him too much of a name throughout the movie. He definitely isn't like, well, listen, I'm Nikkei Jumpo. You need to listen to me or something because he's just a low-level teacher. He's not somebody important. Which is so funny because Eiji Okada, role that I think of him the most from is, uh, what's it called? The, the French film. Hiroshima Mon Amour. Yes, it's Hiroshima Mon Amour, where neither of the main characters have names either. So, like, this, he just doesn't get a name in his roles. <laughs> he plays the role so well in this, because you could go so many different ways with this idea of him being this prisoner, and he could freak out and just scream and yell and go crazy, and he... He does a little bit of that. He does a little bit of everything, but I think he just does everything right. It doesn't feel like the hysteria is too much. And he's a sympathetic character. I understand. Yes, you're, you're trapped in this situation, but also I'm just like, do get a grip, you know, like think this stuff out before you just start rashly doing this stuff. Like when he grabs onto the rope and it's just like, pull me up, pull me up. And it's like, that's not going to work. I don't know why you think it's going to, but you are not doing this right. And when he makes his big escape, that he ends up in that quicksand. It's like, oh, you're just, you're doing the wrong thing every single time. Well, he's got a certain arrogance to him, too. I mean, part of, part of why I think he doesn't panic is he's a man of science. And, like, he thinks... He's going to figure it out. I mean, you know, his first attempt is like, I'm going with the slope of the sand and I'm digging these footholds and I'm going to just climb up, you know, the side of this, you know, sand pit. He always seems to think he's got the next idea for what it's going to be to get him out. Um, you know, and then when he gets to the end, it's like the crow was my last idea. I was going to tie a note to its leg and send it out as if a crow were a carrier pigeon. But he has that certain arrogance that, you know, I'm going to figure this out. And and it's almost like he welcomes that as a challenge. He almost embraces the fact that he's been taken prisoner because, ah, this gives me an opportunity to show how smart I am and how clever I'll be to get out of it. And I think that's why you never really see him kind of have that freak out moment. I mean, he has a little bit of it, but for the most part, he's kind of like, I'm planning my next thing. He almost reminds me of the scientists or super rational characters in horror movies who usually wind up getting killed because they're so unwilling to accept that the rational view they have of the world is not necessarily how the world actually is. And here it seems like he, his arrogance comes from that like insistence that like, well, this is the rational world. You can't just put a guy in a pit. People will come looking for him. And she clearly feels sorry for him for th having this like 
rational delusion about how the world functions. It's it's kind of funny. <laughs> well, also, he challenges her. I mean, here's this person who's been living in this situation who obviously knows something about the conditions she's living in. And, you know, he forgot exactly what he says, but he kind of makes an issue of like, sand is dry. And she's like, no, you know, you'll get a rash from it. It's wet. It's it has moisture. Oh, and it's when it's rot. He, yeah, she tells him it's rotting the wood. And he's like, impossible. And, you know, she smiles and kind of like, OK, but, you know, he insists like he doesn't even want to contemplate her point of view, even though she must have some basis for it that he's totally ignoring. But, you know, my science tells me, no, that can't be. And I must be right. And you're not worth listening to. <laughs> yeah, it's like he insists on wearing clothes when she knows it's easier to sleep naked. And she puts a towel over her face to keep all the sand out. But no, no, he knows better. He knows better. Yeah, it's, the whole thing is basically him mansplaining to her for like, you know, two hours in a pit. But it is funny that it's not like someone's boss mansplaining or there's no like daddy energy with the mansplaining. It's clear that he's a lower level teacher or worker. And so it almost seems like he kind of mansplains to her or is arrogant towards her because in his mind, she's lower than he is on this totem pole. And I think she kind of is because she makes that comment that like, you know, we're getting this alcohol and these cigarettes and all these things delivered because there's a man here. Like the, the households with men get more things. His way of thinking and insisting that like his way is better and he knows more without him being truly assertive and truly macho it's that like inherent kind of bureaucratic politeness that seems to trap him there, ultimately. <laughs> well, and I feel it's less based on gender and more based on class and also a sense of I'm a man of science and you're kind of a peasant. You're a crazy person out here shoveling sand. <laughs> you don't have the education I have. My education allows me to know more than you, not necessarily like... I don't respect you because you're a woman. I mean, I don't think he respects the male villagers either, even when they seem to know a lot more about the sand than he does when they come to dig him out of the quicksand. You know, he's still kind of like, I'm the man of science. I know more than you. And even if you're rescuing me, I'm still the one who knows. <laughs> yeah, like it's ridiculous. I mean, it's almost comedic. I, I love that they openly laugh at him when he's sinking into the quicksand and he's like, use the, he throws a rope to them. He's like, use this rope to pull me out. And they think it's so funny. They're like, well, you can't get out of quicksand that way. But he made that rope, you know, it's like. He did with his superior intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> There are the villagers that laugh at him and yell at him and those kind of things. But it's really the older guy that seems to be the mouthpiece for the village. And we don't really know too much about the village. You know, we just get, again, they stop by at the top. You know, he's looking up at him. And there's the guy with the 
great sunglasses that keeps the sand out. And then when they're all wearing the masks and things, I mean, it just, they, they are othered so well and so effectively that you just, you're afraid of them because you don't know what these villagers are up to, what they're doing. They just seem to show up and they want to keep them working. And that's all that they're there for. They're just here to pick up the sand and. You know, maybe occasionally drop off some water. And yeah, that whole idea of how important water is and, oh, we're not going to work. Okay, well, then you're not going to get any water. I mean, that's one of the most intense areas of the movie, I think, is when they're just going through that withdrawal, that water withdrawal. Well, and he has that one quick run through the village at night when he escapes where we don't really get to see much detail. And I think we hear a couple of people scream, but that's really. The only time we see something of the village or of any of the people, aside from, you know, his perspective from down in the pit. I'm sure a lot of this had to do with budget. This is definitely the way Pitfall is, where there's just a smaller cast. The locations are really empty. But I love that so much of what you know about the village and I often hate this kind of exposition in more mainstream movies, but here it's like instead of showing us that there's a watchtower or that there are other people in the village, we just hear about it in dialogue, which I think makes you question like what is real. It's like if if he isn't seeing it and we as the audience aren't seeing it, like are there other houses? Is she just making this up because she's lonely? It's like there's almost no way to know, which makes it feel, I think, even more like folk art to me. But also it puts you more in his place. We're only seeing as much as he sees. That makes us feel more trapped in that pit and more... I mean, we can identify more with what he has to do, what he's going through. And like, I think it's such a smarter choice. I mean, we get an occasional view from the top looking down. But for the most part, it's, you know, only kind of what he sees. There's not a real omniscient kind of point of view very often. Which is very in keeping with the novel, which is all first person and just all of his expression and, and what he's thinking. And I'm glad that they don't have the VO in the movie. I think it's better to leave that out and to leave us guessing as much as he is. And I think it's kind of wordy in the book at times. He, you know, will definitely think a lot about things, but yeah, I agree that idea of not knowing if there is that watchtower it reminds me like the, the whole panopticon thing, which is like he's trapped and he's, or he's an insect and there's the microscope and they're looking at him under glass type of thing. The other thing that I always wonder if it's true or not is, was she married? Did she have a child? Were her child and, and husband swept away by the sands with the chicken coops? Because we don't know. I'm pretty sure there was a picture postcard salesman that was part of the village and maybe in her pit or somebody else's pit at some point and passed away because he couldn't take it. He's kind of the, the, the other example, you know, of, of, well, we had this other guy in here and he couldn't hack it. So, you know, you could end up like him. Maybe he didn't even exist. I don't know. I also love the story that she tells him, which we also don't know is true that, the one person who managed to escape wound up coming back. 
by the end of the movie, though, I would believe that because I think that's him. Because he sees, and I don't think they say this in the movie, but they say it in the book, when he gets out and he sees the other pits where the other people are, he sees that they have rope ladders. So they could get out whenever. And I think that's the ultimate thing for a prisoner is that you basically can leave the cell door open. You can leave the rope ladder down and he's not going to leave. By that time, he has been broken. You know, you're talking about all the things at the beginning of this where it's like, well, we'll take away your water. Well, you know, maybe you don't get this. Maybe you don't get that. And just continuously break him down until he becomes this perfect worker. It's really disturbing. Feels like my day job. Yeah, I was going to say, it's... (laughs) Just keep shoveling the sand, you know, and then somebody else comes along and says, what's my sand doing in boss so-and-so's hole? (laughs) But is what he's doing there any less or more meaningful than what he was doing in Tokyo? No. No. And that's what he realizes, right? At the end of the book and at the end of the movie, he realizes... There's nothing back there for me. This is my life now. It's just as meaningful as it was in Tokyo. And maybe more, because the smaller scale of that village could allow him to get more recognition or have kind of more of a standing than in this huge, bustling city where he was like a little bug crawling around and nobody noticed. When we were talking about comparisons to horror movies or horror movie elements, it made me think of some of those early universal horror films that have just like weird close up shots of bugs crawling around during the day that are often connected to like Dracula or the mummy. And it does have a very early body horror kind of vibe in a way that I think is more overt in Teshigahara's later films like Face of Another but it just like that comparison of him to a a tiny bug under a glass is I think part of what makes it feel so creepy and they just keep reminding you of it. Well and also he's the one who's you know sticking the bugs with those pins in nice neat little rows in his boxes and categorizing and organizing and labeling and he's doing as much to you know trap these bugs and put them in tiny vials and kill them he's been hoisted on his own petard (laughs) yeah it's such a big moment when he throws away all that stuff throws it into that little fire pit that they have and you're like oh Okay, he just crossed over into something else that he wasn't expecting, that I wasn't expecting as a viewer, and he wasn't expecting as the protagonist. Well, and also he's doing it in a moment to help her, because he's throwing those bugs away and he's giving her the box to put the beads that she's working on. And it's like, I don't need this anymore, but if it helps you, it's an odd, it's an unexpected moment. Yeah, that give and take between them. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the sexual intercourse, which is, that's the poster image, is seeing them in that embrace with one another. And just that they go there, because it doesn't feel like there's a lot of love between these two. It just feels like we're stuck in this pit together. What else is there to do? Well, and also they have sex at the moment when they're deprived of water. It's almost like, (laughs) what can we do for distraction? You know, we're, I mean, they're in physical agony from lack of water. 
And it's like a moment, like that's the moment they choose to do that. All that sand, it seems like it would be very uncomfortable, but I am grateful that, so in the book, there's this whole strange chapter leading up to them having sex where he he talks about in his sort of like partly to her and partly in his inner monologue he talks about having an experience at a brothel that was really unpleasant and he's obsessed with the idea that he has a venereal disease even though he he says in the book the doctor says that it's just a stress related thing and he isn't he, like he he didn't catch anything but he's like obsessed with only having sex with her if he can put a condom on and she's kind of like what's the big deal we're in this sand hut <laughs> well and it is very interesting too that the means to his escape at the end is her pregnancy and that the pregnancy is wrong it's an ectopic pre- pregnancy i believe and just oh i hate when they are hoisting her up and you can just see the pain that she's in. And it's like, he's using that to his advantage or thinks that he's going to, and he just feels so bad for her. Also. Can we talk about the fact that the way, unless I am misinterpreting this scene, the way that one of the villagers realizes what kind of help she needs, he bends down and sniffs her and is like, Oh, she's pregnant. And then then he's like, he sniffs some more and he's like, oh, this must be an ectopic pregnancy. And it's like, what? Are you like one of those cancer dogs? (laughs) Well, they say he learned how to like he learned about health issues because he was working with a vet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which (laughs) maybe smell comes more into play dealing with animals. Pretty unpleasant but still kind of subtle comparisons between her and the villagers and animals. There's that awful scene, which he says it to a different character in the book, but in the movie, he says it to her pretty early on. He says something like this kind of work you could train monkeys to do. And she looks really upset. She like clearly takes it personally. He's kind of an asshole, isn't he? (laughs) He totally is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's that whole thing, too, of them wiping each other down. And there's a line in the book about, you know, judging civilizations by how clean people are. He's not necessarily obsessed with it, but he definitely wants to be clean. And that's the most sensual I think this movie becomes is when they are washing each other and you get those long shots and especially the skin. I mean, the skin after a while starts to almost look like a sand dune because you've got the sand on it or you just see all the pores and just the way that this is shot it you know we started off the conversation talking about how beautiful this is and just every aspect of this whether it's the dunes the sand you know the images in the pit i mean there's so many great shots in this and the use of the black and white photography is gorgeous and i'm trying to think cuz i saw a face of another i don't think i've seen pitfall and I haven't seen Man Without a Map yet. I don't. Was Pitfall black and white mm-hmm. as well? I think okay. they're all black and white. I think so. Those shots of them washing each other and having sex and embracing each other again really reminded me of Hiroshima Mon Amour, which has similar shots of these just like close ups of bodies, but there 
it's so much more overtly erotic. Whereas here, I think it kind of does this complicated but fascinating thing where we'll show you an image that is kind of erotic and then it will turn sort of grotesque and then it will be like such like incredible close-ups of pores and sweat and sand on skin that I think he does an amazing job of evoking the same types of things that Abe does in the book with language it really is incredible. The bodies and the sand, I mean, sometimes you're dissolving from one to the other. Sometimes it's just the texture of skin or the sand on skin gets to a point where you can't tell one from the other. He does the same thing with the sand as with the bodies, which is extreme, extreme close-ups and then pulling back and the different context of those shots. I mean, yeah, it's a gorgeous film. It is kind of dehumanizing sometimes, though. It's the way that he focuses on just like a patch of skin. And it's so different from the way that nudity or erotic scenes are shot in most films. I don't know if I'd see it as dehumanizing, though. I mean, I just think it's a different perspective. I don't find it necessarily... Yeah, maybe that's the wrong word. I think it's... It's just about their bodies and not about who they are as people or what they're like or what they do. It's, and I think so much of that happens with her in general, where because he's removed from his previous life and from the city, it starts to become more and more about the essentials. And it seems like those are not things that he's thought about. Well, also, she's just kind of part of that landscape on a certain level she's already like part of the sand because i mean you constantly see like sand on her skin you know you see his skin very clearly like wiped off and completely clean and clear of sand but most of the time there's some sort of grains of sand on her making her look almost like you know she's some sort of sand sculpture and after they have sex at the first time, it's not like there's suddenly love in the pit. He treats her just as bad afterwards as he did before. It's not like they wake up the next morning and it's, you know, rainbows and birds chirping and crows with messages tied to the legs flying around or anything. He just is, yeah, he's an asshole and he just continues to treat her that way. And it's basically has gone down to biological need rather than any sort of emotional attachment. The closest he comes to trying to be sweet to her is he like, he talks her through all these different plans he has about breaking out. And she's just kind of like, uh huh, sure. And he says that if this one plan that he has works, when he goes back to Tokyo, he'll send her a radio. And the way he says it is like, won't you be so grateful? And she just kind of looks sad. And it's like, Dude, no wonder no one will miss you. I guess the only other thing that I wanted to talk about was, so when I got to see Pitfall last week, Tashigahara's grandson did the intro, and he was talking about how his grandfather didn't think of himself solely as a filmmaker. And I think this kind of goes back to what Mike was saying earlier about how he... When, when people talk about the Japanese new wave kind of as a whole, he's often sort of pushed to the side and 
isn't given a main focus, which I always thought was kind of unfair, but like he did make fewer films than a lot of his colleagues. But when his grandson was explaining his career, he was saying like he was kind of a painter and an artist first and went on to like lead this art space and work with all these other painters and sculptors and knowing that he thought of himself more as a visual artist than just specifically as a director, I think makes this film make so much more sense because so many of the shots feel like they could be paintings, especially the shots of like sand and skin. And I now want to go back and watch the face of another because I assume that will have a similar vibe. Well, and also I think his films were in a certain way, very different from a lot of the other Japanese new wave. They didn't fit quite in. I just saw Face of Another for the first time. That's an amazing film. That is it's so, good. so wild. I mean, it's a weird sort of sci-fi vibe. And there are some crazy shots in that. The one that struck me was when like a door opens in the scientist lab and there's like a huge shot of hair floating in water that fills the entire doorway. And it, there's no way it can be real. But just the whole process of like taking a face and a mask and putting it on this guy's burned face and adhering it to him and how that, you know, gives him a sense of being able to kind of a wildness to do whatever he wants because he... He can hide his identity. And that was an amazing film. I mean, I I had not seen that. and But I don't see that fitting in neatly with any of the other Japanese new wave, really. He definitely is the most surreal out of all of them, even if they have similar political leanings. And a lot of the other directors like... Oshima to a degree and definitely Imamura. I feel like they focus a lot on female characters and sort of how they're affected by like class issues and all of these more obviously political things. Whereas Teshigahara didn't really do that. I think he used more genre themes. Some of his films feel much more like they're dealing with existential ideas as opposed to very grounded political and social ideas. I mean, he was obviously, he and Abe obviously have very strong and similar political beliefs, but the films feel more like they're just pondering a bigger question of, you know, who we are and why do we behave the way we do and less specifically. I mean, Pitfall, I think, deals more specifically with issues about the miners and I think it even used some documentary footage in it. It's the one that reminded me the most of a typical new wave film because it does have this issue of a miners union and striking and sort of people trying to stir up trouble between different union factions. But it's still like there are dead people walking around whose minds are blown that they're dead. They're like, wait a second. (laughs) Why am I lying over there? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and again, like that is so surreal, which is not a common trait in a lot of those new wave films. No, there are definitely plenty that use 
the influence of folk tales and ghost stories, but not as not as in your face and weird. And, not as weird. <laughs> yeah, but like the thing I love so much about this film and all of his that I've seen is it's like narratively they're weird, but they're also visually disorienting. Like the things we've been talking about with Woman in the Dunes, it's like some of those shots you're not always sure what you're looking at. Like, is this part of a person? Is this part of a house? Is this just a sand formation? And I can't think of many other directors who can pull that off. The whole thing of him being an artist then seems to make more sense when it comes to his later work, like his documentary on Gaudi, which is great. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but um, I went to Barcelona a few years ago, and when I came back, I was like, why did I not watch this Gaudi movie beforehand? But yeah, he did one Antonio Gaudi, and it's mostly focusing on uh, Sagrada Familia, the um, which I still don't think is finished. I mean, he made this movie in '84. I can't remember when Gaudi first started that project, but they're still working on that um, cathedral in Barcelona, and I don't know if they will ever finish it, which is kind of a neat thing. That's kind of cool. That yeah. That film changed my friend's life. He saw that movie and he decided to quit his job and become a work in architecture. <laughs> wow. At least it wasn't Woman in the Dunes. No. And he quit his Drug job. To go in a right. sand pit. <laughs> to shovel <Yeah>. sand. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if they went to Park Ruel in that one as well, because that's really cool in Barcelona. It's like this. It was supposed, to, I want to say it was supposed to be like a housing type of thing, and it's up on this great location, but it's basically, it's almost like an art village that he created all himself, Gaudi, and just beautiful, beautiful stuff. And this very particular way of doing like mosaic work that was just mind blowing. Yeah, I love when artists do port, like portraits of other artists, whether it's a book or a documentary. And- yeah, this definitely is making me want to watch more of his work. That's for sure. Yeah, I haven't seen that Gaudi documentary in a long time, and it's making me want to rewatch it. I want to screen the face of another here in San Diego. Like, I want to put that on a big screen and have people see it. <laughs> we talked about that one when we did an episode on Seconds. I thought that that worked well together as a as a double feature, as well as the film Suture. Do you remember oh, that Suture. one? Oh, Suture. And Eyes Without a Face. Oh, yeah. That'd be a good one, too. It also is such a deranged interpretation of the Invisible Man themes, where it's like, because he can cover his real face, he's just like going, he's he's lost his marbles basically they call doctor says you're drunk on the mask sort of unrelated have either of you seen an early 60s movie called the mask is it the canadian film yes okay yeah i remember that image i think that was on the front of incredibly strange films is that right okay yeah yeah Ah. It would so if you haven't seen it it would make an incredible double feature with the teshigahara film it's this low budget, maybe 1960, 1961, sci-fi horror surreal movie that has no business being as good or as scary as it actually is. And the stuff that they do, it's a similar sort of thing where there's this mask that 
is in a museum or, or a university or something in the archaeology department and they start putting it on and they get addicted to putting the mask on. And it's it's like the mask takes you to another place. So it's not like the same type of invisible man science fiction type of thing, but it has some weird parallels. Something was happening in the 60s. <laughs> but yeah, Eyes Without a Face was the one because it had a similar vibe in terms of the kind of special effects it was using. Practical, very clever, but not really all that sophisticated, but super effective within the context of what they were doing. And like, I just admired both of them for like the way they, the way they depicted kind of the science fiction-y part of the story. I mean, I would rather see those kind of cloth masks or like the masks that we see in Woman in the Dunes, I think are no masks. Mm -hmm. I would rather see those any day than some CGI bullshit. Well, also what was cool in the face of another is how when he first puts on the mask, how the actor acts so stiff, like I can't move my lips because he wasn't really wearing a mask, the actor. It was just his face, but the way he changed his physicality to kind of appear like, for the first time, I'm wearing this fake skin, and it doesn't quite fit me, and it's a little uncomfortable, and it doesn't quite fit around the lips, and drinking is hard, and I just thought it was great the way he played that. Yeah, there's so much innovative stuff in these Teshigahara movies. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. A master assassin. Let's find an outsider. Master of disguise. What code name will you use? Nameless, faceless, cold. Why not the jackal? One last job. So you want to get rid of it? To take out the top man. This job depends on absolute secrecy. Directed by Fred Zinnemann. You know yourself, they always talk in the end. Edward Fox stars in Frederick Forsyth's bestseller, the award-winning The Day of the Jackal, now showing on New Direct Films. 
That's right. We are wrapping up a listener request month with the discussion of the Day of the Jackal. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Sam and Beth. So, Beth, what is happening with you lately? Well, I'm recovering from building a home haunt and cleaning up Rancor monster poop. But um, aside (laughs) from that, I'm really excited because our next year for our year-long film series for Film Geeks is going to be Godzilla. We're going to show all 14 Showa-era Godzilla films. And I'm buying a set of cookie cutters for each of the monsters, and we'll be serving all the all the kaiju for a year. Wow! So I'm very excited that about that. Amazing. Yes, that's Whew. so exciting. I can't wait. I I uh, have this sort of guilty bad habit of falling prey to instagram ads but internet ads more broadly of godzilla products so i now have i have godzilla drinking glasses yep. a water bottle and a shower curtain oh i wow. got so much godzilla stuff i've like been obsessed for a long time i have one shelf devoted just to glow in the dark godzilla wow okay i feel a lot less guilty See, you shouldn't feel guilty at all the the one thing i'm trying to find right now is i mean hetera is my my favorite Mine too. My And I think part of that, well, my love for hetero was cemented when I found out after talking to Graham Skipper about his book that the poor actor, the poor suit actor had a appendicitis while in the suit and they couldn't, they didn't have time to take him out of the suit. So they operated in the suit without anesthesia. And I always thought poor... That poor suit actor had probably the worst, the heaviest, the most cumbersome costume. But they've made a product and it's, you know, those things that you have to dust like your computer that's got mm-hmm. like little. So they have a hetera like that. And it's like the little tentacle kind of things. And that's amazing. I need to track I, that down. You need to find it. I keep joking the last couple of years that for how ho- I'm going to be Hedora for Halloween and just like wrap myself in garbage bags and like glitter. <laughs> I made I made a tree. I made a Hedora tree. Yes. And you you I used garland and the tinsel and garland and had the little red eye and oh yeah, that was wow. fun. That was fun. And uh, now I now I feel like I have a a Godzilla level of fandom that I can aspire towards and not feel guilty that I keep buying Godzilla. Never things. feel guilty. <laughs> Never feel guilty. They bring me so much joy. They do. They're wonderful. <laughs> I, I did a whole podcast wearing my Godzilla mask once when it was screen drafts. We were doing one of those screen drafts with Godzilla. And I, even though it was like 90 degrees, I put on that damn Godzilla mask and kept it on. And Sam, what's the latest with you? I am working on finishing up a Godard series for my Patreon. I have done all throughout the year. I've watched every single one of his movies in chronological order, and it's been fun. But I am ready to move on <laughs> to another topic next year. Twitch of the Death Nerve, my podcast. We took a little break because we moved to New York, but we just started putting some episodes out again. And I think the most recent Japanese-related thing I've worked on is Cauldron is putting out Zero Woman Red Handcuffs, and I was super honored to do the commentary. So that should be out soon. I have to pick that up. I'm just 
pre-ordered black tight killers i saw that radiance is putting that out i love that one it's so, so fun good. yeah that's right in my sweet spot of those kind of pop art type of japanese films i love that stuff yeah give me a pop art spy spoof any day well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.